0: Going for the gold title of this message, every four years, millions of lives revolve around the event that celebrates the height of athletic achievement, which is the Olympics. And there'll be another one coming up in 2020 as far as summer Olympics. A lot of people set their VCR, not a VCR, that's outdated. I don't even know what DVDs, whatever. They set it so they can watch it if they miss it when they get home because they're kind of in, enthralled at that. Does anybody watch the Olympics here? Does anybody? You know, I like the summer better than the winter, actually, but anyhow, I'm talking about kind of the Summer Olympics today in that sense. But uh, these people that are in the Olympics, that all these years and hours of training and sweat, they focus on one thing, and that is on that raised platform. There's two sides, but they don't want to be on the sides. They can—they're all right if they're on the sides. If they don't get, they want to be on the top. They—they're uh, looking for that gold medal. In Rio in 2016, ten thousand five hundred athletes vied for four thousand nine hundred and twenty-four medals. And I'll guarantee you, as those people trained and got ready to go, that was on their mind was the gold. And millions of people around the world turn in to 6,000 hours of programming on NBC. We think about that, and everybody focuses on, on when they get there and when they finally get into their event, but what about the years leading up to that? We don't focus on that so much. Athletes prepare for the Olympic Games through several years of intense focus, physical and psychological training. Because what they're doing, they're trying to get to the peak of their performance, if you will. Most Olympians, seems born with physical advantages, but boy, those years leading up to that is is a lot more intense maybe than we understand unless you've known somebody that's trained for the Olympics. Many of these, these athletes train four to six hours a day, six days a week. And the big deal about that is the discipline that they have in their lives, and they're trying to get their bodies ready for that. But along with that physical, it comes uh, mental as well, and a lot of them will hire sports psychologists to mentally prepare for the event. The purpose of this intro is to kind of get our minds focused on that, because what's true for athletes in the Olympic Games is true for Christians in the arena of life. Without the right training, desire and objective, victory will always be out of reach. Can you imagine in the context of the kingdom of God that's spread throughout the world as you divide believers up, on put on one side the believers that are defeated and the believers that are victorious on the other side that live a victorious life 24-7? I hate to say this this morning. I, I believe there are a lot more maybe on on this side then there would be this side on any given day within the context of the kingdom so paul's going to give us the the formula for becoming a winner the holy spirit allowed paul to do this and and he, he the point is that as we live this life as believers he wants us to live victorious he doesn't want us to live defeated this is the core training manual for being a follower of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Remember that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. You also must run in such a way to, that you will win. All athletes practice strict self-control. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run straight to the goal with purpose in every step. I'm not like a boxer who misses his punches. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I, might, I myself might be disqualified. When You sit and you take in the scope of things, of Paul, that part of the world, and, and what's going on in his mind, these verses kind of drip with the sweat of athletes. You can almost hear the grunts and the groans. It's one of the things in professional tennis which Kurt knows a lot about. I don't know much, but in the matches that I've watched with the Williams sisters when they hit the ball, uh, uh you can it's it's always there there's always some noise coming out, and there's a lot of different athletes that do a lot of different things that, that, that the the grunts and the groans come out i i I don't I, I don't think we can understand this passage till we dig back deep into it a little closer and we go to when it was written actually and some of the words that Paul's trying to bring out. The key word in all this passage is self-control. It means strength within. Carrying with it the meaning that that we have got some sort of discipline in our lives that we can overcome some of the temptations in life and things that want to take us down the road to impulse or overindulgence, actually. And that's, that's the key to victory, is, is this discipline and self-control. Now, when Paul wrote this, he's speaking from the grandstands of the Ithmian Games. It, it was our equivalent to the Olympics, held every two years, 10 miles outside of Corinth, that brought people from all over the Mediterranean world to compete or just to watch. It was the sporting event within that two-year period drawing the empire's finest talent. Athletes would complete foot races, broad jump, discus throwing, wrestling, boxing, gymnastics, and equestrian contests. They competed fiercely, each one striving for the coveted Isthmian crown. It was just a wreath of wild celery. It had no worth, actually, and it looked something like that. But if you won that, that means you were the best, and that's that's what they… But along with that came they received a lifetime exemption from paying taxes, which we don't have to pay many taxes in America, do we? That's… that's a, you, I, think, I think even myself, I'd get out and run four or six hours a day if I didn't have to pay taxes, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, and serving, They didn't have to serve in the military, and they had tuition-free educations. Bernie Sanders, some of his re- relation was there, I'm sure. And in that, if you won, they put statues of you along the road into Corinth. Ron, you liked that, didn't you? I thought, I thought maybe you did. I, I shouldn't have said that, actually. I'm not a political person. I'm an independent, so I, that's, that's where I'm at, but I, I, my mouth gets me in trouble more than you can imagine, actually. Paul draws from the memories of these games to teach us how to become spiritual victors. He starts with this question and command. Paul opens with a rhetorical question that sends his speech off and running in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about rewards. And I think this is sometimes that we have put off or we don't talk about, and maybe it's uh, the clergy or the leadership's fault that we don't talk about it. But earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentioned that every one of us in here that has bowed the knees to Christ and given our heart to him, we're going to stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema Seat. You're not going to get out of that. Every human being is going to face a judgment, either the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment where none of us really, we we don't want to be there. We don't want people we love to be there. But here's what Paul is saying, is on that day, when we stand before Christ, I think there are going to be some of us that's maybe a little puffed up because, we, ma'am, Lord, I have served you. I have done so much. I have sacrificed. So when we stand before the Bema seat and Jesus looks down on us, we are expecting a big attaboy, a pat on the back or whatever. Paul's alluding to the fact that for some of us, all that we have laid at his feet, all that we thought was so great that we did for him was done with the wrong motive, poof, it'll be gone. And all we'll have is a handful of ashes going into eternity. We'll be in. As many people have told me, man, pastor, I just want to make it by the skin of my teeth. And there will be those there that when God rewards us and we stand to lay and cast our crowns at his feet, we're not going to have any. All we're going to have is just just moultry pile of aces that that mean that we didn't do perhaps what we, we should have done. But then those who faithfully obey his word will be rewarded for their spiritual good they accomplished on earth. Second Corinthians five, nine through ten, or first Corinthians three, thirteen through fifteen. So this is why Paul encourages us with such emphasis run in such a way that you may win. That's verse 24 in 1 Corinthians 9. He wants us to realize that running just to finish the race will never bring a reward. <laughs> He's bringing into fact that it keeps in mind as we enter the arena of life. And as Hebrews 12 says, the crowd around us, people that have gone on are cheering us on. is for us to look to the end And it's hard to do, but not notice what else is on the field. But we look down this raceway to the end, and there sits Jesus on the bema seat with his arms open out like that with our prize in his hand. We might be wondering who would run a race with anything in mind but winning. Who would train and put all that time and effort and sacrifice into expecting to lose and content to go home empty-handed? We would, actually, spiritually speaking, and we do all the time. We forget that the purpose of winning the race for the sake of Christ's glory, and we just run. We just run. We just run the life. Fatigue, sometimes. Instead of wearing running shoes, we either got cowboy boots or hiking boots on, and still we run as if we've forgotten about the prize. John Howson beautifully puts it this way, and I quote, We go and take our place in the course as though the prize could be won without any running at all. Or, or we dream and loiter and fold our arms. We turn aside to look at every object at passing interest. Or if we did begin with some vigor, all the zest and warmth of the struggle grows feebler and fainter when it ought to become more animated, and we care little what hindrances occur to stop our course and to risk a dishonorable fall, end of quote. Remember in Hebrews, Jesus talks about remembering our goals, but also the writer of Hebrews says, Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race as is set before us. Hebrews 12.1. It's interesting when you see the Olympics, not that anybody ever notices, but these people don't have a lot of clothes on, and what they do have are light, very light. They don't run in, in boots or real thick jeans or car heart coveralls. They strip down. They're ready to go. And, and, and Paul brings that in that we need to take all these things of the world that have attached themselves to us and discard them so we can run the race for Christ. To give it our best, we have to be properly trained. This involves self-control in all things. The Ithman athletes submitted themselves to a grueling training program that called for long hours a strict diet, abstinence from alcohol, and almost uh, masochistic exercise sessions. They endured all this with one goal in mind, winning a wreath that would only last for a few hours. The next morning, they'd get up, and I'm sure it was brown and dried up. Paul shows us that, unlike the ancient athletes, we run for eternal goal. Verse 25, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but We and imperishable. They discipline themselves to win something that wasn't going to last when we should train for an indestructible reward that lasts forever. Heaven forbid if we ever settle for just the perishable. C.S. Lewis, with a brilliant mind, gives his thoughts on our easy chair attitude toward God's rewards. And I quote. If we consider the unblushing promise as a reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End of quote. And I, I think that that is, that is so true for all of us. It's not me and you, it's us. We're human, we struggle. The fact is we we have to be honest about it. Some days that fits me. Here, I'm the leader of the church. God convicts. But nonetheless, we have have created a world that is, is so comfortable and full of pleasures. And how easy it is to do what this guy's doing instead of turning the tap for God. That's it's a lot easier to do that. And you get you know, you always talk about people, people always tell me, say, man, I, I walk by this recliner, this couch, and it just sucked me down, wouldn't turn me loose. So I, that, that's maybe happened to you before But that that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. We we've we've accepted such an easy lifestyle that we we want to just sit in a recliner and When God calls us home, we just go into heaven. In verses 26 and 27, Paul stops using the plural terms we and uses himself as a model. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Verse 26, he kept his mind on the goal was a punching bag or whatever and he saw that punching bag as sin or whatever. He was in the ring with sin. He didn't throw any wild punches. He cocked back his fist and swung and he landed squarely on the target. Sin is relentlessly deceptive and it's constantly working in our lives everywhere we go, everything we see, all that surrounds us regardless of where we're at. Constantly working to catch us off guard, and to knock us to the canvas. How many times have we had our face driven into the canvas in the ring of life? And sometimes you get broken bones, noses, eyes, lips get busted, and you bleed. And we can lay there in that misery and those consequences that we've created. And there are uh, us in here today, I would say, over 90% that we have created consequences in our past that we'll live with the rest of our lives, and we have scars, emotional, physical scars sometimes that we've caused on ourselves, and we can't, we can't go back, but we can go on, and we attribute that to different things, but sin can cause this in our life. Paul's wanting to say, use some self-control. You might get beat black and blue in the ring, but you'll stay on your feet. And he states it this way in verse 27. I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. We dare not let down our guard against sin. We have to have a strategy to defeat that sin in our lives we have to have some objectives that we can achieve in God's power that will weaken our opponent opponent and ascend, eventually send that opponent reeling to the canvas so we look down on them instead of vice versa one of the strategies that that i use is in my mind when it comes to temptation I say, Satan, you got to hit the road. Sometimes I may have said say it 10 times. I belong to Jesus. It gets my mind back to where it needs to be. <laughs> and then the next course of action is, help me, Jesus. Help me, Lord. I want to do this thing, but I can't because I know the consequences. I know what will happen. And then Satan's there, the, the perfect picture of the cartoon with the angel and, and, and Satan sitting on shoulders, and he's whispering in your ear, Hey no one will know this. Yeah, but God knows it. You know it in your heart. Holy Spirit knows it and that's when he when he prods you. <laughs> Remember the crucial term in this passage is verse 25. All athletes practice strict control. You can interchange that to say all believers that want to be victorious in Christ must and have to practice strict self-control. Big black letters and quotations. Not just self-control, but strict self-control. Strict meaning absolute, complete, specific limits, exacting, disciplined, enforced. Self-control requires an honest look at your strength and weaknesses, with emphasis on the latter. You know where your weaknesses are. Satan knows where your weaknesses are. We all have an Achilles heel, and he knows exactly where it's at. And that's where he hammers away at all the time. It means building up the will to say no when a powerful appetite inside you is screaming yes. Saying no to... Friends are situations that will lead you away from Christ, saying no to casual sex, saving intimacy for marriage, saying no to laziness in favor of can-do and will-do. Self-control is a long, steady course in learning attitudes that do not come naturally and channeling natural appetites toward God's purposes. Where are your weak points? You know that where they are. You need to pray and have an accountability partner to help you pray through these things, where that weakness is, or when that temptation comes, and you think you're going about to give in. Text somebody or give somebody that you trust a call and say, "You got to pray for me now because I'm in a in a in a dangerous situation here." Self control falls under every category and every part and every facet of our lives in humans. Anger has surfaced almost as a norm in American culture. It is sad to say, this day and age, you can go to the newsstand, you can go to McDonald's, you can go to Hardee's. And if you look around and start discussing things with people, when you bring up certain top- topics, you've got to fight on your hand because people are mad, they're angry, and it doesn't take long for that, for that anger to surface is the problem. It comes out pretty quickly. I know that nobody will raise their hand and admit they have road rage, but it's in here. <laughs> I, I can see them horns just under your head, some of you. It's there. It's, I, know, I know it's there. In 1994, Kevin Costner made a movie called The War. Costner plays a Vietnam vet with extreme PTSD, who in this clip is faced with road rage, and he conjures up, if you will, some self-control in dealing with that. Let's watch. This is an interesting clip. Get that piece of junk off the road! Them yeah. on, Dad! Oh, Dad go back. Yeah. Come on, Dad! You're go. Come on, Dad! He's starting to That's why he did Bumper. We need no car, you big, fat son of a bitch. That's the way you teach your kids about talking, don't. Well, no, but I think he's seen you slamming against our car like that. He got, got a little emotional. Daddy's treating us in a following in a poison out of Yeah, I got done all over me because of him. He's got my kid in a safe room. No. No, no for telephone You lying to me, son? You better don't catch yourself lying to me. On, Dad. Don't to me. Well, he's so I'll just you. let this go. Come on, Dad. Come on. Seems like our kids are going to live. No, Daddy, Doesn't look like there's any real damage done to our fine automobile. You being smart with me? Because if you're looking for a fight, I'll fight you right now. He could beat himself out of wet well paper bag. I don't believe in fighting. I bet you don't. You yellow-tailed chicken livered wussy. <laughs> so like it is. Well, at least you don't smell like a drunken skull. What'd you say to me? I'll break your neck, you look I can't allow you to put your hands on my son. You don't see me correcting your children. I don't mind so much. You plowing into my car and I don't take offense at you calling me names. But you go after my child, you're going to push a button on me and then I'm going to lose control and kill you. Now I apologize to my son. I apologize. He's mighty kind of you. My son has something to tell you. Apologize to Mr. Lipnicki Stu. Tell him you're sorry for insulting him. Sorry, Mr. Lipnicki. Things can get out of hand pretty quickly. I've seen in that clip though, he exercised some self-control, but he did what he had to do. Sometimes it is unavoidable. Paul exercised such self-control as athletes do. and He mentions running, and then he mentioned boxers. He did not run the race aimlessly. Nor was he like a boxer that misses his punchings. He focused on the goal, he runs straight for it with purpose in every step. He didn't get off course, so to speak. He didn't become lazy. He kept disciplining and training his body. Satan sees to cause us to stumble and sin and continues to buffet. Us with sorrow and pain as a daily reality, Romans 7 14 through 25. But instead of being bound by our bodies, believers must be disu- diligently disciplining ourselves in the Christian lives in order to stay in shape. Here's the significance Paul has given us a great deal to think about in this passage. I want to mention in closing three brutal boxers that continue to bludgeon us in the ring. And we need to become more effective in fighting these things that come into our lives. And these problem areas are mentioned in 1 John two sixteen, For the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure, the lust for everything we see, and pride in our possessions. There are not, these are not from the Father, they are from this evil world for the world offers only when we see this world in which we live and we line that up with what God offers us you see them the vast difference for the world offers only and that's all it will ever offer us the first one's lust of the flesh it's, it's comparing this with We've already talked about sexuality in here, and Paul brought that up a lot because it was such an issue as it is an issue today. But the opponent is the craving for sensuality. In the Old Testament, sensuality was represented by the idol Ashtaroth. Her followers worshiped her through every form of sexual perversity imaginable. Although today there are not Ashtaroth temples in her honor. This sex-obsessed culture is alive and well. And we ask if she has delivered an uppercut to you in your life. Has she dizzied you with pornography or premarital sex or adultery or homosexuality? We can't let down our guard. We have to go to Christ. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to help us control our sexual passions. The lust of the eyes... This opponent is the equivalent of the ancient idol, Baal, the god of materialism. He promised wealth and success to anyone who revered him. We ask, has he, has he caught you off guard to a degree, taking your eyes off Christ and placing it on things? Is possessions more important to you than giving? If so, realize you may have become an idolater. We, you cannot serve God a true God and a false God at the same time. So sometimes we have to step back and regain our balance. Don't let Baal steal your eternal crown. And then the last one was the boastful pride of life. The Old Testament God that symbolizes this sin was Moloch, the God of influence. Many people thought he would give them power if they fed his ego with the lives of his children. You read in the scripture that the Israelites were taking their children and burning them in the fires in the valley of Hinnom to this god Moloch. Moloch. So they were captured in some of his, in that thought. So we ask the question how important is your pride? Are you willing to sacrifice the good of 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 who you are or the good of others, maybe even your family and your friends to gain self-recognition and influence. If so, Moloch has landed a blow upon you. A lot of times we have to sacrifice our ego to be all that we can be in Christ. If God were to open the door to your private arena of your heart, would he find Ashtoreth, or a Baal, or a Moloch winning the match. If we ask him for power to overcome these things, he will give it to us. Mark eleven twenty four. Jesus speaking, listen to me. You can pray for anything, and if you believe, you will have it. And then Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4, 7. An idol is anything in our life that takes the place of Christ. So, this morning, as we close, as we <coughs> land this plane, so to speak, I'm gonna ask you these questions and only you can answer them. Are you preoccupied by lust, yearning to fulfill the sensual drives within you? Hardly at all, somewhat, more than average, greatly. And then there's a question the reason you rated it that way. Are you overly attracted to or absorbed by things? Hardly at all, somewhat, more than average, greatly. Reasons for your ratings. And then the last one, are you lost in your drive for power, influence, and prestige? Hardly at all, somewhat, more than average, greatly. Reasons for the ratings. This is a private thing. It's like I say to you all the time. It's just you and God in here. Yeah, there's brothers and sisters around us. In all actuality, it is God Himself speaking directly into your heart. So I don't know how you rated these. But perhaps we I wish we could say we all circled the first one. I, I don't know if that's true even in my own life. If you didn't score so well, you need to confess that to Christ and we need to give it to Him and ask for forgiveness and to get us back on the path. That's the problem with us in life as we run this race. We, we get distracted. I, I wish that when you come into the kingdom that all you could see was in life was Jesus. That's it. No, nothing else. Nothing, all the trappings in this world would be gone and there are these big high border walls that President Trump wants to build on each side of life, and we could just go to Jesus and not be distracted. But that's not the way it is. We, we, we know temptation. It's everywhere we turn. It's everywhere we look. But the fact is, we have to come up with a program or a strategy in our own lives on how we can be focused on Jesus most of the time and not let these other distractions come in and rob us of that. I could yammer about this all day, but the fact is, in your sphere of influence, God has people there for you to be Jesus to. And if we're not focused, we're not, we might be Jesus to ourselves. that may sound crazy, but we're the only one we're Jesus to. We're not doing it to these other people that God has us in their lives. I love you guys, and we, we struggle together. We don't talk about struggles much to each other. We don't, we don't let down our guard, so to speak, because we don't want to appear weak. We don't want to appear like there's something wrong with us. But I'm here to tell you, I'm messed up. <laughs> I need God and each other to get through life. I, I'm a lot farther down the road than I was 20 years ago, and maybe even five years, and hopefully three or two, but I'm still... We're still in this together. I don't think, and I can get off on a tangent here about how much we need each other, and that's a whole other message. But I don't want you to ever forget that. As Paul said, remember, there are brothers and sisters all over the world that's in this same arena, that's in this same boat with the struggles that we have. But right now, we just, we just need to be honest with him. Lord, you know our hearts. You know all our hearts. You know how we answered each one of these questions. Even though we might have ignored them, we still have an answer. We could pick one of those words. So right now, Lord, I just pray that we're honest, and whatever you are saying to us now, Holy Spirit, we might deal with it before we leave this place. If there are those in here this morning that's never known you, we sure invite them to come. They can accept You right where they're at, or they can come down here and we can explain it and pray with them. Or with people with burdens that just want to dump it on You, Lord, they can do that where they said, or they can come down here and have brothers and sisters that love them, surround them, and pray for them. So that's where we're at. So I'm just leaving the rest of this time up to You, Holy Spirit, that You might have Your way. I love you, God, and I thank you for loving us. I ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.